Welcome to Be Simply This Is She, and I want to thank you for joining us today. We have special guest, Bethany Halbrecht. She is going to dive a little bit deeper into creativity as it relates to her TEDx Veil talk. In addition, she's going to share her two projects, Paint the World and the Art of Migration. Without further ado, let's dive in with Bethany. Bethany, I want to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I would love for you to share with the listeners what inspired you to actually uh, begin embark on your journey of a creativity and the concept behind uh, paint the world. Start with my um, my journey with creativity first. I was very involved in a social impact community. Um, I've always been involved with with various social impact communities, social entrepreneur communities um, in New York. And I realized uh, pretty early on that my genuine um, passion for social impact didn't necessarily um, come out of a empathetic, come from an empathetic place, but more so a curiosity around what if. Um, so what if everyone on the planet had the tools um, to create things that they dreamed of? What if they had the tools to experiment? What if they had the tools to build solutions? Um, so, uh, so it was really, um, so my journey with creativity really began with, um, with social impact, actually. And, um, and then I started experimenting um, with different public art projects. So I, um, I put a blank canvas up um, just to kind of see what would happen, and I, I attached paints and supplies um, and came back 24 hours later, and I was completely blown away. Um, People collaborated. There were, uh, you know, I, I, somewhere between 60 and 80 um, people had collaborated on this first piece, and it just looked like one person did it. Um, and it told a story. There were symbols. There were um, the feeling that I got from looking at this first collaborative painting um, was the same feeling that I that I got from being in that community. So um, it really inspired me and made me think. Hmm, there's something here, and I wonder what would happen if I did this in um, in more places and really scaled this simple project. From there, could you share with the listeners what you've discovered about the commonality uh, and the differences between our human spirit? That is such an interest. I love that question. It's it's interesting because before um, putting these blank canvases up. I thought that the people who um, who might be drawn to it would would be those that are comfortable with um, that that would that would maybe call themselves an artist or um, have some sort of artistic background. I had hoped that um, that people would contribute to the canvas that um, that wouldn't necessarily call themselves an artist, but I had no idea and um i was i was so so um relieved when i saw people contributing that had no artistic background that um that saw it as an invitation to um to just record whatever they were feeling and 
um, it really, it was interesting because the, the people who, um, this has always happened because I've been doing them ever since, but the people who contribute to it um, in the beginning see a bunch of random shapes and, um, and drawings on the canvas um, in kind of sporadic locations. It doesn't look that aesthetically uh, pleasing to the eye, but, um, but I think that's what draws people in at first, um, or at least gives them, um, makes them feel like they have some sort of permission. And, um, and then the people who contribute to it at the end tend to be those who, um, who have some sort of uh, really strong creative confidence. They feel that they could uh, kind of bring it together and make it a cohesive painting. Um, but something that I noticed is and something that really struck me is this activity's capacity to really bring people together um, and make them feel vulnerable because people have no idea what they'll what they'll end up contributing until they kind of put the the paintbrush to the canvas um, and the the whole experience um, this this is actually what I think is really it. Um, Whoever contributes to the painting needs to be okay with their contribution being covered up. Um, so they need to kind of let go of it. And sometimes we, we assume that, um, that we gravitate towards feeling an attachment towards what we create. But I've seen now conducting this experiment in, um, in many cities that uh, we actually don't have that, that um, attachment so, so innately. Um, it's more natural for us just to create without actually feeling um, ownership over our creation. It's just the, the act is more natural. I think that was a huge realization. Can you share a little bit with the audience about your what if, what you discovered, and what you feel is missing in our society, especially around creativity, because there's more than not we're faced with having to support self and push maybe, especially your propensity to work in a creative field or the arts, uh, those basic survival things come first and the other aspects of having the tools that you need to explore, to take on an endeavor, aren't there. And um, what you discovered in your own exploration and what you feel might be a solution to start uh, welcoming in higher states of creativity and right. um, support. I love that question too. Thank you for asking it. Um, it, it. I see a huge correlation between providing tools and opportunities for creation and um, an economic prosperity. I think that if we, I mean, if we, if we look at the, the cities that in the last 10 years have really um, prospered, like uh, for instance, in, in their own way. So for instance, um, my hometown actually, Buffalo, um, or, or even Detroit, um, metropolitan areas that have really, um, perhaps experienced a um, kind of lower economic state 
about 10 years ago. Um, that's kind of lended itself to, because, because things were, um, were maybe cheaper, cost of living was lower, um, that's when artists tend to kind of come out of the woodwork um, and start exploring because they have more opportunities to do so. So then they, they, create, um, they create things. So community centers, cafes, um, really cool, interesting restaurants, um, these are really, you know, like places of gathering. So, um, so then we tend to build things around those places, and we tend to regard these, um, these places as, as kind of like happening cities, you know. Um, and then, of course, gentrification comes in and all of those things. But if you really look at it, um, that process tends to start with, giving creators the, the tools and the opportunities to, um, to really grab hold of their, um, grab a hold of their, their ideas and make, make them a reality. Um, so uh, something that, that really, um, something that I think is pretty interesting is that uh, there are 17 millennium development goals right now. And um, although, although you can, interpret that um, that creativity is kind of an underlying um, mission there or enhancing tools for creativity is really an underlying mission there uh, it's not one of the goals and and I and you know a lot of um, a lot of people that that look to to fund things um, actually do refer to those goals quite often and and mm-hmm. I believe that until um, until the arts and creativity is actually made uh, the 18th goal or made one of the goals, um, it, it's really difficult to um, tangibly prioritize it, um, you know, mm. just for funding purposes. And have you noticed, since you've been working on the, this project and other ones, a shift? Uh, because typically if we look back in history, there are times when there, are, there were a large range of artists creating on a level that we can't even really replicate today without machinery or automation, not by the human hand uh, the same way. Of course, there are people that are masterful, but not the, the quantity or the output of work. Uh, do you notice a, have you noticed a trend where there's uh, starting to be an increase of attention placed there? An increase um, on attention placed on handwork? The, well, the yeah. importance of the arts and supporting them, you know, back, let's say, even in the oh. Renaissance, you know, yeah. the artists were supported in a way that, and right. celebrated in a way that they're not supported and celebrated in our society. Uh, mm. And if anything, they're actually, there's more, from my viewpoint, a manipulation of the arts, especially in the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's yeah. Artists in the Renaissance, as you mentioned, artists were um, were really looked up to, and um, and it was more usual. It, it was more common to regard an artist as an inventor, as a scientist. Many scientists were artists. Uh, you know, like I like I mentioned in in the talk, the you know it was it was kind of a more of an understood idea. Now, you know, some, somewhere along the way in the last 
couple of centuries. Um, for some reason, we have um, evolved that idea, um, not necessarily um, productively, at least that's my belief, but, um, but now we have this stereotype of artists, uh, you know, just because, because society doesn't necessarily um, support this sort of work or prioritize it uh, as an important tool to, um, to progress a community's economics, um, like I was mentioning before. But, um, but now we have this idea of, of artists that uh, is actually sort of negative sometimes um, in regards to their role uh, in contributing to a community's success. Um, so the stereotype of them being, you know, kind of in the clouds, um, flaky, um, not producing work that's necessarily relevant, um, kind of, you know, taking up um, money that's considered um, kind of a, uh, it, it's considered a luxury to, or it feels like a luxury sometimes to, um, to make time for art or to, um, to integrate into, to integrate it into a um, school curriculum, for instance. You know, that's why so many arts programs have been cut. You kind of need all of these puzzle pieces to work together uh, in a way that, um, that will really, uh, you know, work well in the fabric of society. It's hard. And for you, as far as uh, being a creator and your scientific yet uh, social interest, where do you currently place your passion integrating the two right now? Well, um, right now I'm kind of I'm looking at um, creativity within specific fields rather than um, kind of a general approach. So, um, you know, there's so many books on um, creativity and innovation. Uh, at least my perception is that sometimes it's hard. Sometimes the people who, um, who I believe kind of need to explore that, um, that side of them most are, aren't really the ones that tend to be attracted to the, that sort of material. Um, mm. So just recently I actually um, did several workshops and spoke at a psychiatric conference, um, which is something that, which is a field that is notorious for, um, for you know, lots of red tape. Um, you know, we have lots of talk about big pharma kind of present, preventing um, solutions, some real solutions from moving forward. Um, and then we have the DSM, which is, um, you know, kind of like the Bible of, um, of symptoms and diagnoses. And so I, I, I really um, focused on, on working with these, with these psychiatrists and um, thinking about creative ways to approach their very um, notoriously uncreative, well, potentially, <laughs> I was going to say um, notoriously uncreative field, but it's actually, it's a very creative field, but it just made, you know, like I mentioned, there's, there's a, a bit of bureaucracy there. Um, mm. So, so we, were, we were really brainstorming and, um, and coming up with, with interesting ways to, um, to approach 
the um, the DSM, the evolution of the DSM, um, which, as I mentioned, is kind of the um, the tool that many psychiatrists use to um, to diagnose accurately, to diagnose their patients accurately. Um, it's it's a con- you know there there are a lot of people that do that do work in in creativity and innovation and and give talks about that and um, and run workshops, but it's um, it's a completely different thing to uh, to try to um, overlay these ideas onto specific fields, and um, and so that's a constant experiment too. But um, but it was interesting. It was interesting to do that within psychiatry last week. Absolutely. And and did you get a chance to find out uh, at the conference uh, if? people are actually willing to move away from always going to pharmacology to assist in psychiatric uh, balancing and, and maybe exploring other activities before they go there? It's, it's hard because, um, you know, even if, even if they come up with, um, with a solution to something, it's, it's, um, not necessarily something that they could move forward on scale without um, that solution, that paper being published in a in a um, in a scientific journal. And it's really it's difficult to get things published that won't receive financial support, um, and it's difficult to receive financial support from a pharmaceutical company if they believe they'll lose money from supporting it. So, so they're so, they're so willing, uh, you know, to explore alternative um, methods, but, but there's a lot of confusion around the, the path, the path to uh, actually getting those solutions in the mainstream. And I think that the approach is something that, you know, requires, really severe out-of-the-box thinking, um, mm-hmm. a combination yeah. of out-of-the-box thinking and, um, and you know, a, a, a different way of approaching. Um, approaching. There, there's, there's something called a tempered radical, um, and it's a type of leader that, that is really acutely aware of the, the people that they're um, – that they're trying to move an idea forward within um, and so acutely aware that they understand they might need to change um, their language just to gain trust um, with those mm. people. So, so I think it's about exploring, um, you know, moving those ideas forward in a creative way, but also um, doing that as a tempered radical. Mm. I like that word for that. Phrase. Yeah, I know. Me too. Uh, <laughs> So, and how do you feel your works can assist in, in that field? And I noticed you also worked in um, recovery in Tucson, Arizona, drug addiction, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And how, how it can assist. Because so much I think what we're learning is an integrative approach uh, is important, especially when we're talking about maybe regaining well-being. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, aside from these from these talks and, and workshops that I've been doing, the, so Paint the World is really the start of all of this, and um, or the the experiment that kind of um, 
you know, is moving this, this sort of um, kind of the, the, that's kind of, that's progressing this thought along. And um, in, uh, in psychiatry, for instance, um, you know, these, the canvases could be, um, could be placed in waiting rooms in, um, in, uh, offices, at conferences, they could really be placed anywhere to gain this unique understanding of, um, of a specific group of people. And um, the idea behind it is very, is very Jungian. Um, you know, there's, there's symbols and archetypes that come up. And, and actually, Carl Jung um, is, is a pretty popular guy in, in psychiatry, for instance, um, just because, you know, so many doctors use, use those techniques regularly to, um, to better understand their patients, for instance, you know, just seeing the, um, the visuals that, that comes through and, um, and analyzing them, analyzing those visuals often, um, you know, actually, which is interesting, um, but those visuals tend to more accurately tell us what's going on um, whether it's within that individual or, um, or the combination of those visuals together um, in a community. So mm. sometimes um, words kind of misconstrue ideas, and especially when we're looking at communities, um, the, the communities that, um, you know, if you, if you think about small communities around the world, you know, there's a lot of corruption. Often the leader that emerges is the one who, who tends to have um, more money than, than the others in the community. Um, so sometimes the, the words that are expressed by that leader on behalf of that community, you know, I'm, I'm of course talking about the developing world here um, mostly, but oftentimes the leaders, the words that that leader expresses on behalf of the community aren't necessarily um, in the best interest of that community. They're not necessarily accurate. Um, so, so these visuals that, that can come through um, on these canvases are, are truly um, more likely to accurately portray um, what's really going on. And we can only... Um, work in moving solutions forward once we really understand accurately what the issue is and what the problem is. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, and, yeah, it's really a tool. Absolutely. Beautiful. And can you share a little bit, uh, I told you before we started, it caught my eye, um, the science of creativity kind of parlays from the, the question about supporting the art uh, and the economic value of the arts by numbers. Can you share a little bit about that? As I was, um, as I was referring to before, I think that it's pretty clear that there is a really strong correlation between, um, between enabling opportunity for the arts and, um, and economic progress of a, of a community. It's really, and I think the, the visual that you're referring to um, was one that I put together that um, highlighted the fact that um, the arts actually contribute 
around $700 billion um, to the U.S. economy. And um, there are 4.7 million workers in the arts and cultural sector, which I think is just astounding. Um, so these numbers are really there that, um, that help prove this point, that there's such an intense correlation. Um, but what I've found really interesting in in working on Paint the World and um, and doing everything that I can to move it forward, there's there's really um, a true lack of lack of data um, when we look for for studies or for um, for specific information that can help us move this work forward. Um, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's general statements. Um, but when, uh, when you look at um, arts organizations that um, have consistently received, you know, large funding, um, large amounts of funding, you'll see that um, the people or the foundations who tend to fund um, arts organizations are, are foundations that have, um, a specific interest in the arts because of um, because of their founder or because um, because there's some sort of emotional uh, tie there somehow, um, and that's that's difficult because when you um, when you start an organization that you believe um, you know and, and you find data points from sporadic sources you know put them together and and um, you know, believe that, that those data points um, provide evidence that, that this correlation is there, um, it's, it's, hard to, uh, um, it's hard to really provide the, um, the same sort of evidence that, um, that programs that are maybe going for, um, for funding in areas, like you mentioned before, you know, that, you know, for survival, like, um, like poverty or, you know, the, the areas that, um, that we tend to put before the arts just because the, um, the need that's there is, is so much more urgent. Um, you know, sometimes we obviously put these, um, you know, that's, that's more of a short-term or urgency, whereas something like funding the arts is, um, is, Easily not as perceived, not perceived as um, as urgent, but in the long term um, will be. And and I know that seems kind of like a, a meta way to look at it, but um, but there is a book called The Future of the Mind um, by a futurist mm-hmm. called Michio Kako, and he talks about the fact that um, in uh, twenty years or so. Um, We'll have we'll have um, chips that we'll be able to put knowledge onto and kind of like transfer um, knowledge between us. And my perception of this is um, is that it'll change the face of education. It'll change um, the way that we we relay things. And we'll have to think, oh, is is knowledge a luxury or is it a democracy? Yada yada. But what that really means, um, and he talks about this. Um, a bit in his book as well, is that um, knowledge is power now, but but creativity will be power in mm-hmm. um, 
in, you know, 10, 20 years, whenever that happens, whenever those chips are actually a reality. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's interesting because, um, because that kind of shifts the, um, the perception of importance, right? Like that's a, that kind of places a whole new meaning onto it. Um, but, but yeah, to answer your question, I think the, you know, the numbers are there in such sporadic and such a, um, the numbers are there in, um, in a very sporadic way, but it's, it's difficult to, um, to find the, the true evidence when, um, when there is a lack of funding in, um, in the first place, you know, that would fund mm-hmm. studies um, that kind of prove, prove the reality. So it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation. Absolutely. And if you could share a little bit about, you know, working in your own creative process, even as you did, you know, when you were a child, your imagination and tapping into your innate inner intelligence versus approaching creativity from the intellect, uh, especially in this day and age where we have mass internet media that's kind of pushing people to think creatively and how can they stand out creatively, yet it's really more of an algorithmic approach versus really, you know, being Albert Einstein staring at bubbles in a bathtub to come up with a new uh, <laughs> physics theory. So yeah. can you share a little bit how you keep that, that balance for yourself and welcome yourself to um, maybe merge the two, that science and spirit, uh, to put it in more simplistic terms? Yeah, um, absolutely. So... Uh, people like um like Albert Einstein and some of the greatest inventors um of the past several centuries and and obviously beforehand um really had this understanding that um they could acquire all the knowledge in the world um but then uh, to really put that knowledge to use and to um to really pin down these um these extraordinary revelations, they had to give their mind a rest. Um, and so that's why, that's why most of them, if not, I mean, I, I should say all of them, because I haven't actually found one great inventor who's really come to, um, to an extraordinary um, revelation like that, that hasn't been, that hasn't had some sort of um, creative outlet. But, but they, all, they all knew, you know, whether it was... Um, piano or violin for Einstein or, um, or the drawings and, um, and notebooks that Edison kept, for instance, like, um, like I mentioned in that talk, but um, they all had this understanding. And, um, and I think that it's, it's interesting because now we have this, um, this concept of brainstorming, right? Where we, we think that, um, to come to a solution, to come to a really interesting um, um, idea, we might need to um, set aside time for it, and it, within that time, to um, to sit down and um, and look at a blank sheet of paper or a whiteboard with a group or something, and 
and just kind of like come up with ideas and spout them out. Um, but that, you know, that's why people talk about writer's block because um, some, you know, when it, when it becomes a, a chore, something that's just kind of like tasked into a list, um, it's hard to, um, it's hard to really make those ideas, to come up with those ideas. But, but there's a reason for that. Um, so when, we, when we're asked what, what we think of something or to come up with an idea, we often just refer to our immediate memory. Um, and then when we're asked to move a little further, we often just change the shape or the size um, within that memory, the color or something like that. Um, but, but to really actually allow um, those dots to connect in our head, we have to, um, to intentionally put ourselves in a situation where we're not thinking directly about solving the problem. Um, so that was a very long-winded way of, <laughs> of saying that, um, that to, for, for me to feel that, um, that creative confidence or for me to, to feel like I'm really creating in a way that, um, that could highlight my best, whatever, you know, the, the, the best thing that I'm capable of highlighting in that moment. Um, I know that I need to disconnect from, um, from my computer, from my emails. I need to go for a walk um, or, or paint. Um, painting for me is really like a meditation. Painting is like a um, – it, you know, some, people, some people get their, their ideas in the shower. Um, I get mine when I'm painting and, um, you know, my mind is really, my mind's at rest. I'm not focusing on the, um, on the issue at hand. And, um, and, you know, that is, there's science behind that all. Um, our mind has to go through all of the brain states, um, for an idea to, uh, to surface. Um, so, uh, so it's not just um, not just a suggestion. It's actually um, you know putting ourselves in situations for our mind to be at rest is is a, a real is actually the way that it that it um, the only way that it tends to happen. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. And can you share with the listeners uh, about your adventure that's coming up this summer uh, about the art of migration? This summer, um, with three others, I am embarking on this um, kind of crazy road trip from Berlin to um, through Europe, up through Mongolia, ending in um, a place called Ulan Ud, Russia. And um, we're driving 10,000 miles and stopping in 22 places, um, and ho- in each of those locations, hosting um, conversations around migration. Um, we're crossing 22 borders, so, um, so we have a really interesting opportunity here visiting communities that um, have, or countries that have very large uh, refugee populations. And um, in each location, we're hosting um, and putting up Paint the World canvases and um, leaving them there. And then at the end of the, and, you know, of course, I'm leaving them with um, with a community member that um, that will take responsibility for it and um, and replace the canvas 
every few days um, to see what emerges. But after the journey, uh, we're going to have some really interesting collaborative images that, um, that emerge from each place. And I'm so excited to, to see what, um, what kind of story they'll tell. Because um, I think that, you know, just, just imagine the, the collaborative piece that comes from um, a place like the Saloniki in Greece as compared to, um, to a collaborative piece that could come from a community in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Um, mm. It'll be totally different, you know, and, um, you know, who knows if maybe the same symbols will emerge, you know, the same um, kind of one one painting could be um, totally dark and um, completely disconnected, you know, not as cohesive um, in a community that's experiencing um, kind of intense struggles at the moment, um, whereas right. maybe a community that isn't necessarily experiencing those things, um, but maybe another set of things, you know, that painting will be different as well. So it'll be interesting. But that's the journey. That's, that's the artofmigration.com. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. And mm-hmm. can you share in, uh, with the listeners a call to action, something that you've learned from the work that you do that they can do to simply engage with art, with their creativity, whatever you, but simply. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Put up a blank canvas in your community and um, and share the image. And you know, I think that that's the um, you know it's a key to to understanding. And um, and I would so love to uh, to see what that looks like. To see what the the image that comes from your community. Um, to see what it says. You know. Mm. Beautiful. And can you share with the listeners where they can find you on the World Wide Web? We'll include all the links, but I always think it's good for you to uh, share yeah, them Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can read more about Paint the World at paintheworld.com. And um, you can find out more about that road trip, <laughs> that 10,000-mile road trip. <laughs> that I mentioned, <laughs> no big deal, um, at artofmigration.com. <laughs> uh, art and, um, and if you know anyone in any of the uh, 22 um, or 20, it might, might be 23, um, we'll see, but any of those countries that will, those cities that we'll be driving through, please let me know. We would love to invite them to the events. Um, and we'd also, yeah, I'd love to, we're, we're hosting events, um, in the States after the journey as well, um, to uh, share the paintings that came out of the, um, that came out of the trip and a film that we're putting together. Um, so, you know, it makes sense to host one in, in Vail, um, mm. or in Boulder. And I'd love to extend an invitation to your listeners to those events as well. Wonderful. And I also will include also the links to your Facebook page and Instagram, and uh, oh, thank you to find different ways that we can support your your endeavors. Um, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much uh, for really pulling community together, opening their creativity and their imagination and their opportunity to actually heal and transform on that canvas. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I appreciate it.